Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello again, and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Brake and Nathan Apodaca. How are you guys doing over there? Good. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for asking. Now, we are advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, the topic that we're going to be discussing today is on fetal deformity and disability. But before we get to the episode proper, I'd like to first talk about uh, an apologetics class that Nathan has been doing. I'd like to get his feedback on how it's been going. So, uh, Nathan, please talk to us a little bit about your class. Sure. So last Thursday night at the Life Choices Pregnancy Resource Center in Poway, California, we gathered together a group of us, about five or ten of us, and I showed a, a recording of Scott Klusendorf's recent debate with Dr. Nadine Strawson from Wayne, at Wayne State University last, late last year. And I showed it for a couple of reasons. One, because I think both of them, the debate I really think shows a good example of the respect that they both have for each other as intellectuals and as human beings. Both Nadine and Scott are really good friends, and so they usually have a really good debate together. They're very respectful, but they're also very convincing in the way they both present their case. Also, Nadine, I wanted to show the audience, because I think the audience, they've heard a lot of well, the audience are showing the debate to, they've heard a lot of the pro-life ideas, um, and they'll hear a lot of the pro-life Ethicists, and I hesitate to say this, but they'll often hear a lot of the bad pro-life arguments, and so I wanted them to see what the pro-choice arguments are, and it was really informative for them. In fact, actually, a lot of them were uh, shocked by how uh, convincing some of Nadine's points were. Of course, uh, Scott presented, I think, the better case in the debate, and so that's why what I also wanted them to see was how he on point, how he presented the science and the philosophy, and how he answered her questions and objections, both persuasively and respectfully. 
So it was a good one all around, and uh, we'll be discussing it further this next Thursday night. Great. And Nathan's going to be holding this apologetics class for another couple of weeks, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the program when we talk about our upcoming events. So today's topic we're going to be talking about is actually the first part of a three-part series on the hard cases that pro-life advocates have to contend with when we make the case for the pro-life position, especially since abortion choice advocates will usually raise at least one of these hard cases against us when trying to argue against our case. So the topic that we're going to talk about today is what is the morally correct thing to do in the case of a poor prenatal diagnosis, either a fetal deformity where the embryo or the fetus has some kind of severe deformity and they won't survive until birth or they won't survive long after birth, or in the case of a disability in which the uh, the developing embryo or fetus after they're born will have some sort of disability that will prevent them from flourishing fully as a human being. So the main things we're going to talk about are how these cases more closely parallel euthanasia rather than abortion, and then we're going to talk about how to address address these arguments by trotting out the toddler. Just to introduce the topic a little bit, I mean, this is a very hard topic for many people, especially parents who are expecting a child. They're excited about giving birth, but they find out their child has a birth defect that may even be fatal. And so if a couple did find out that the child they're expecting is going to have a deformity or birth defect, would that justify abortion in this case? So if you take the recent the news last year about the Zika virus outbreak in the United States, and I was recently having a conversation with a friend, and she raised this question. She said, if a mother found out her child was going to have a severe birth effect um, due to the mother being infected with the virus, uh, the virus actually doesn't really affect the mother, but it can get carried over to the child and cause the child to have a very severe birth defect. And so... Uh, other questions come up about a child who has anencephaly where only the brain stem develops, not the actual brain structure. And so people will ask, well, is abortion justified in that case? Well, before um, Clinton and Aaron also jump into it, I just want to review the pro-life argument, the pro-life syllogism that we covered a few episodes back. And we do need to keep the logic of the pro-life argument in mind when we are discussing the hard cases, whether it be rape and incest, life of the mother, or uh, fatal fetal anomalies. And so the pro-life argument goes, the first premise, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Second premise, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. The conclusion is, therefore, abortion is wrong. Now, keeping that in mind, if that argument is valid, then that's going to help define us and help us answer the question of what we should do in these different cases. Right. And so we need to keep in mind that the premise of the first premise of the pro-life argument is that it is always seriously wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. That goes for a human being at the beginning of life regarding issues of abortion and human beings at the end of life regarding issues of euthanasia and uh, physician-assisted suicide. And so even though we're talking now of cases of human beings near the beginning of their life, very shortly after conception, these situations that we're talking about here are actually more closely related to euthanasia, because now we're not we're not specifically in at least most cases talking about aborting the child out of convenience for the for the pregnant woman. We're now talking about putting to death the human being 
as a benefit to the human being, essentially. And that's what the euthanasia arguments are for. So these situations that we're talking about here are really more comparable to euthanasia. Now, cases of fetal deformity are actually cases of involuntary euthanasia, not cases of abortion properly understood. In the case of severe fetal deformity, there is a sense in which the pregnant woman may decide to abort for her own self-interest because she doesn't want to raise a handicapped child. But in many cases, the pregnant woman aborts because she thinks it's the humane thing to do for the fetus. She doesn't want the fetus to go through a hard life, getting picked on by other kids, or in severe cases, she wants to spare the child suffering, physical suffering, as well as emotional suffering. Now, it's involuntary euthanasia because the child does not request being killed. The child is killed because other people, for example, the mother, the doctor, etc., have decided that the fetus's life is one, not, is one that is not worth living. Now, the problem with this kind of mindset, however, is that it is impossible for one person, especially someone who doesn't have to live with this ailment, to decide for anyone else whether or not their life is worth living. Now, this has led even to most children diagnosed in the womb with Down syndrome being, ab being aborted. I've seen figures that state anywhere from 60 to 90% of children with Down syndrome are aborted in the womb, and this isn't even a severe ailment. People with Down syndrome often lead very happy lives and are able to contribute productively to society. Going right along with that, in his book, Defending Life, Francis Beckwith quotes former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, who says the following, It has been my constant experience that disability and unhappiness do not necessarily go together. Koop says, Some of the most unhappy children whom I have known have all of their physical and mental faculties. And on the other hand, some of the happiest youngsters have borne burdens which I myself would find very difficult to bear. Our obligation in such circumstances is to find alternatives for the problems our patients face. I don't consider death an acceptable alternative. With our technology and creativity, we are merely at the beginning of what we can do educationally and in the field of leisure activities for such youngsters. And who knows what happiness is for another person. Yeah, you know, something that I was thinking about as you were talking about Frank Beckwith's quote of C. Everett Koop is I think part of the reason we might see or think of disabilities as so debilitating is because we don't have those disabilities. And so we've become accustomed to to being you know, I hesitate to use the word normal, but um we're in a position such as which we we don't have to deal with these disabilities and so and so not having to deal with them it seems might cloud our judgment about what it would be like to have these disabilities and so i think that that our our inability to put ourselves in the position of these people with these disabilities might make us think that they're worse than they actually are especially when it comes to having to deal with those kinds of disabilities uh, am am i making sense or am i like off my off my rocker here. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a really good point. Something else, actually, I wanted to add to what Aaron just said was that uh, I was having a conversation with someone out at UCLA, and she said, she goes, well, if the, the child's going to suffer later in life, why I want to spare them the suffering. And I, I said, I go, well, first off, we don't know for sure whether or not the child is going to have a good life or a bad life. And frankly, I think that we should let the child decide what kind of life they're going to end up living. I mean, it's really ironic when the pro-choice position is saying, well, you should allow other people to have 
the choice to live the life the way they want, but then they actually end up making that choice for someone else, namely the child, saying, well, you're going to have a bad life, so I'm going to spare you from that, regardless of what you might end up thinking later about it. And so it's a very ironic position to hold. Yeah, another point that Francis Beckwith actually brings up in his book concerning that is that essentially what the pro-abortion choice position is saying in these cases is that it's better not to exist than to exist. And that just seems like in a very odd comparison. How would you even begin to compare the two, uh, comparing not existing yeah. with, with existing? Um, that that seems uh, that that would uh, seem to carry quite a, a burden of proof on the uh, pro-abortion choice position. One of the first things we can point out about this argument or objection from fetal deformity is that the pro-abortion choice position doesn't follow from it. In other words. Even if we were to grant that abortion should be permissible in the hard cases, such as fetal deformity, the position of abortion on demand during all nine months of pregnancy for any reason whatsoever is not justified. The vast majority of abortions in this country kill perfectly healthy, unborn human beings. Now, if you remember yeah, back... You know, oh, sorry, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead, Go ahead, buddy. Yeah. Uh, something else that Frank Beckwith points out whenever he talks about and like you just said, even if we were to grant that abortion should be permissible in the hard cases, he points out, he goes, you know, that doesn't justify all abortions. And that's the argument that people need to make. Uh, it's not enough to simply point out and to go, well, a woman might need it in this case or she might need it in that case. But that's – it doesn't really work. In fact, actually, if we go back to the syllogism that we pointed out, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Elective abortion does intentionally kill an innocent human being. Therefore, elective abortion is wrong. That's the argument that uh, the pro-choice position needs to refute in order to justify the pro-abortion choice position. It's not enough to simply bring up these hard cases. They have to argue that any abortion at any stage is permissible. Yes. So if you remember back to, I believe, episode two, Framing the Issue, we discussed a tactic that is often employed by pro-life advocates known as trot out the toddler. We can take that tactic and apply it to the cases of a fetal deformity. And so we asked the question, suppose that we had a two-year-old who was suffering from some sort of physical or mental handicap. Is it morally permissible to kill the two-year-old or say, for example, the toddler with Down syndrome? Now, the pro-abortion choice advocate, is, of course, is hopefully going to answer that question, well, no. And then we ask the question, well, why not? And the answer we're looking for is, well, because the toddler or the two-year-old is a human being. And so we say in response to that, so if the unborn is a human being, like the toddler or the two-year-old, why are we justified in killing the unborn because of a physical or mental handicap any more than we are justified in killing the two-year-old. In, in other words, we want to get the bring the debate back to the central question when it comes to the moral question of abortion, and that is, what is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being like the two-year-old, again, then we are not justified in killing the unborn for these reasons any more than we are justified in killing the toddler. So, like many other pro-abortion choice arguments or objections, this one begs the question and assuming the unborn is not a valuable human being. Now, we talked about fetal deformity, and another thing that was brought up earlier was the cases of fatal diseases. 
And cases where the unborn have been diagnosed with a fatal disease uh, and are not expected to live long after birth, as Nathan mentioned earlier, can be especially difficult for the parents. Uh, abortion in these cases can often be thought of as sparing the mother from further trauma and difficulty, especially of having to give birth and then waiting for her child to die. Now, no one denies that this is a very sad and tragic situation, but the question we have to ask is, does it follow from this that we are justified in killing the unborn because they suffer from a fatal disease? Well, again, suppose that we have a two-year-old diagnosed with cancer who is expected to live no longer than a month. Would we be justified in killing the toddler because he or she was diagnosed with a fatal disease? Well, of course not. Again, someone might object by saying, well, that's different. But we have to ask, why is it different? Well, because the toddler is a human being. And so, again, we are back to the central question, what is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being, like the toddler or the two-year-old, then we're no more justified in killing them than we are the toddler or the two-year-old. So when we think about it, it seems clear that a person's life expectancy doesn't determine whether or not we are morally justified in killing them. Um, a person's life expectancy may be based on a variety of factors and circumstances, including their race, gender, environment, technology, etc. This doesn't mean that those human beings more likely to live longer are somehow more valuable or possess a greater right to life. And it certainly doesn't mean that we are morally justified in killing those less fortunate. In fact, I think we intuitively understand that those less fortunate human beings need more care and protection. And if that is the case, how much more the unborn? Finally, in dealing with these cases, we need to remember to make a distinction between natural causation and aging causation. The fact that a human being will die of natural causes does not justify using our personal agency to then kill the individual. All of us as human beings are going to die at some point, either of murder, accident, disease, or other natural causes. But that's, this doesn't mean that we can start executing people because they are going to die eventually anyway. And it's the same case with the unborn. The fact that the unborn suffer from a physical or mental handicap, or even in, in the really hard cases of fatal diseases, that doesn't follow, it doesn't follow from that that we are therefore justified in killing them. So another way to think about this, without using trot out the toddler as a specific logical counter to someone begging the question, that is, assuming what they are trying to prove, is a point that Stephanie Gray raises in her book, Love Unleashes Life. And again, if you haven't listened to my interview with her, make a point of doing so. If you found out that a friend or family member was diagnosed with a terminal illness and had only six weeks to live, you wouldn't wait until the fifth week, sixth day to hop on a plane and be with that person. You'd do so right away you'd want to maximize the time that you have with that person. By the same token, a parent who is looking forward to spending the next 50 years or so with their child suddenly finds their world crashing down around them and discovers that now they only have nine months or so with their child. Why wouldn't a parent of a child with a poor prenatal diagnosis want to spend every last moment as much as they can with the child? By aborting the child, we are robbing the parents of the closure that comes with being with a family member until the last moment when nature finally takes its course. It's not healthy to end the life of the child early and avoid that. Now, one such case of a fetus with a terminal illness that bears mentioning, since it is commonly brought up in such discussion, is anencephaly. 
According to the American Medical Association Encyclopedia of Medicine, anencephaly is the absence at birth of the brain, cranial vault, the top of the skull, and spinal cord. Most affected infants are stillborn or survive only a few hours. Anencephalic fetuses are usually brought up when the abortion choice person wants to make an argument that we should allow abortion to avoid the fetus suffering, since some anencephalic infants can survive a short time after birth. Uh, but if they do indeed suffer, then this is not grounds to kill them. When a person is suffering, we don't kill them to end their suffering. People are not mere brutes. It, it, you know, people are not a dog that we just put down. We do everything in our power to ease their suffering, either by administering painkillers or by rendering them unconscious so that they don't suffer. But anencephalic infants don't suffer anyway. According to an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, infants with anencephaly lacking a functioning cerebral cortex are permanently unconscious. It's comparable to being in a persistent vegetative state. Now, I should also point out that anencephalic infants are still human beings, and even in the embryo and infant and fetus stage, they're still human beings. They are biologically human, they are developing organisms, and they still have typical human capacities. It's just that these capacities that they should develop, such as the capacity for rational thought, are tragically blocked by their terminal illness. Stephanie also points out that when going through an extremely difficult circumstance, such as a circumstance in which we're dealing with a lifelong disability and not a terminal diagnosis in the womb, is that what matters is our perspective. A disability we have is outside of our control, but our perspective is within our control. Eliminating the poor attitude, not the child, should be our goal. Now, she talks about an essay by Emily Pearl Kingsley called Welcome to Holland, in which Kingsley says, Imagine that you're planning a trip to Italy, but upon your plane touching down, you discover that you were flown to Holland instead of Italy. Now, of course, you'll be disappointed over the experiences that you'll miss out on by not being in Italy, but we mustn't allow ourselves to be stuck in that negative thinking. Instead, we should focus on all the good things being in that destination has to offer. So it is with the child with a disability. It's natural to be disappointed that some of the child's dreams won't be fulfilled. But instead, you should focus on all the goodness and joy that can be experienced in such a situation. Now, the simple fact of the matter, though, is that no one has the right to make a determination for anyone else that their life is not worth living. That kind of attitude has led to many atrocities throughout human history. And we cannot justify killing someone just because they are a burden. As philosopher Peter Kraft points out in his book, The Unaborted Socrates, it is better to shoulder a burden than to inflict evil. And this, of course, is similar to Socrates' original point, that it is better to suffer evil than to inflict it. Now, we talked about how in cases of fetal disability and deformity, these are parallels to euthanasia, not necessarily just to abortion. And we talked about how we can trot out the toddler to make the case that we should not be aborting uh, embryos and fetuses in these situations. So now I'd like to thank you for listening, and I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Nathan and Aaron, for, for joining me this morning to talk about this. If you appreciated this discussion, if you liked the things that we had to say, then we would ask that you share it around, and please rate or review us on our Facebook page, and also on iTunes. As I mentioned last time, we're now on iTunes, and so you can listen to us there. Now, we do have some upcoming events. Uh, for me, I am going to be debating a right to die with Matt Dillahunty, an atheist internet personality, on Friday, September 8th at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas, Texas, and that'll be at about 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock p.m. Now, I'm going to be spending about a week in Texas, 
And so I'm currently trying to set up some more events for, for me to do while I'm down there. And one such event that I'm in the process of setting up, I don't have specifics for it just yet, and I will talk about those as I get them, is that uh, the Sin Boldly radio program is it, uh, has asked me to come on and do a debate on the topic of abortion. And so that's something that I'm going to be setting up, and that's going to be recorded in Houston, and that's going to be uh, broadcast on a radio, uh, radio program, but I'm not sure uh, when or where just yet. So I will talk about that uh, as it gets closer and as more details are set. And then me, Nathan, I'll be teaching another pro-life apologetics course at the Life Choices Pregnancy Resource Center in Poway, California, uh, this Thursday night on July 20th. This week, we're going to be going over the case for life and how to make that case. We'll be talking about pro-life arguments, and we'll also talk about several of the bad ways that people will argue for abortion. And then next Thursday night, we will be talking about the hard cases, so bodily autonomy, rape, incest, and life-threatening pregnancies. And that'll be at the same location and same time. On August 13th, I'll be speaking via Skype to the apologetics class Reason Why at Catalina Foothills Church in Arizona. I'll be giving a presentation on the case for life, followed by Q&A, and then I believe this will be posted online. So thanks so much again to my friend Dan Grossenbach for inviting me. Yeah, and if you're local to any of these respective areas, go and, and attend these events. You'll get to see the uh, the pro-life advocate in his native habitat. So uh, so those are just some, some events that we have uh, coming up. Now, th this is a weekly podcast that we've been producing, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do for the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are per people working full-time to save them. Now, I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website, and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes section. Donations are also tax deductible. Now, next week, we're actually going to be joined by a couple of our friends and colleagues in Life Training Institute, Megan Allman and Janique Stewart. And we're going to be talking about how to talk about rape with compassion and truth. Part two of our series on the hard cases is going to be talking about rape and uh, in cases of incest. And so uh, and so that's going to be happening next week. And we, we figured we'd bring on uh, Megan and Janique to help give a, a to help give a female perspective to this difficult topic. So that's what we're going to be talking about next week. So once again, on behalf of Nathan and Aaron, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.